This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're discussing the impact of meat production on our health, our economy, and our climate. Many people associate climate disruption with smokestacks and tailpipes belching dark clouds. But belching cows may be just as bad. The United Nations report titled Livestock's Long Shadow found that animals account for nearly 20% of all greenhouse gases. Another estimate by experts from the World Bank say cows, pigs, and other animals cause half half of the world's carbon pollution that is driving severe weather. What's that mean? Producing a half-pound hamburger can generate as much carbon pollution as driving a 3,000-pound car 10 miles. And if you're driving and eating that hamburger at the same time, uh, over the next hour, we'll look at how meat is produced, the growth of organic and grass-fed beef, the impact of California's drought on the livestock industry, the new farm bill, and much more. Joining our conversation here today at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two people on opposite sides of the steer. Tim Koopman is president of the California Cattlemen's Association. His family's been ranching in Alameda County for nearly a century. And Dave Simon is author of Meatnomics, How the Rigged Economics of Meat and Dairy Make You Consume Too Much and How to Eat Better, Live Longer, and Spend Smarter. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Tim Koopman, let's begin with you, and I want to ask you, your family's been in ranching a long time, so I guess you didn't have much choice, but tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you came into ranching. Well, I certainly did have a choice, but I chose, and my kids have both chosen to stay with a lifestyle that we love and a heritage that we love uh, in nurturing the land and nurturing livestock and uh, enjoying what we do and having a land ethic. Uh, my great-grandparents came from Italy and Germany, uh, 1868, landed in Half Moon Bay and sharecropped their way into the Dublin area. And my grandfather and great-uncle purchased the ranch that we now still live on in 1918. Uh, it's a family operation, has continued on through multiple generations. I'm the first of, uh, of four generations that has an outside source of income or an off-ranch income. Uh, because of the economies of scale of, of our particular operation. We run about 200 mother cows uh, during normal years. Of course, this drought year has been somewhat challenge, challenging, to say the least, uh, and we're down about half the numbers. But uh, we've enjoyed the lifestyle. We think we're uh, doing a good job in stewarding the land and taking care of it. And we own about 850 acres uh, in total with the home ranch there. We lease another uh, almost 1,800 acres of additional land that we run cattle on as well. Dave Simon, tell us how you came to write the book Meatnomics. So several years ago, I sent an email to a bunch of friends that had a link in it to a video uh, about factory farming practices. And I know that Tim does not run a factory farm, but but uh, most of our meat comes from factory farms. And the the responses that I got to this email were sort of across the board, but the one that really stuck out for me 
was a response from a friend who was a dean of a major law school who wrote back that while he thought that these factory farming practices were disturbing and distressing, in his view, they were illegal. And that meant that they were an exception or an anomaly. And at the time, uh, although I'm a lawyer, I didn't know whether, whether he was right or not. I didn't know how the law applied to farm animals. But I decided to do a little research, and what I learned uh, really shocked me. And that is that uh, over the last several decades in this country, large animal food producers have embarked on a very aggressive legislative campaign to emasculate and eliminate virtually all anti-cruelty protections that once applied to farm animals. So what we've seen in the last several decades is that literally anti-cruelty protections that once protected farm animals from abusive behavior have simply been eliminated in virtually every state in this country. That's not it. In addition, large animal food producers, and I'm not talking about Tim, I'm talking about large corporate animal producers that have a very uh, significant influence in Congress, have been successful in many states uh, and in Congress in passing laws that make it difficult for consumers to sue them, to investigate them, and in fact even to criticize them. These laws, this huge framework of legal protection, does not help animals and it does not help consumers. It helps only one group, animal food producers, and it helps them by providing them with very valuable economic benefits. It allows them to sell their products at lower prices, to make more profits, and to sell more of those products. Tim Koopman. Now, it's disturbing for us as livestock producers to have this perception that uh, production basically lives on the backs of animals that are abused from the time they're born until the time they're slaughtered. Uh, mainstream producers, and I represent as a California Cattlemen Association president, we have about 3,000 members, and I can honestly say that our membership is very cognizant of and very aware of beef quality, beef uh, treatment, animal treatment, all the good things that go along with the nurturing of these animals. Temple Grandin recognized an issue uh, quite some time ago. She, I've heard her speak several times, and I had the opportunity to, to have dinner with her one time. And uh, it's unfortunate that she's had to do what she's, she's done, but it's good that she's made people aware uh, that some of our practices in the past, perhaps, uh, did not provide the proper care. But uh, I think that from the mo mainstream, those of us that are involved in the industry are treating our animals with the utmost uh, professionalism, and we care about what we're doing. We end up uh, in the middle of the night nurturing a baby calf, trying to get him born. Uh, we raise bottle calves. If mom has a problem, uh, we're doing the right thing. When we have issues like the Hallmark case, which was a couple years back, uh, where we see the cruelty, and it is absolute cruelty, the way these animals sometimes are treated, it's a black eye for all of us that are doing things right. And we will fight against those uh, mistreatment animals just as much as, as David or anybody else would. But isn't it true that there are have been laws passed that prevent video uh, in meat processing plants, that sort of thing? And there, you, there's the, what, what are they called hamburger libel laws that that certain things. Oprah famously, you know, got involved in that in, in Texas. So hasn't there been some legal protections around the industry that that sort of prevents transparency? Tim Koopman? 
was looking to the lawyer for that, but I guess I can answer that. Okay. Do you want to take a Dave shot? Simon? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about exactly the, the legal issues that I'm concerned about. Ag-gag laws, many people have heard about. These are, these are laws that have passed in seven states in this country now and that producers continue to try to pass. We're only in the eighth week of this year. Already four new ag-gag laws have been introduced. These are laws that criminalize undercover investigations at factory farms by making it illegal to lie on a job application or illegal to take film or video. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. You also mentioned cheeseburger laws. These are laws that say a plaintiff can't sue a food producer or retailer over claims that the plaintiff developed an obesity-related disease. Uh, you have eco-terrorism laws that provide enhanced criminal penalties for people who engage in relatively innocuous crimes when those crimes are targeted in an animal enterprise. So if you, if you engage in vandalism down at the 7-Eleven, you might get a ticket. You might get cited for an infraction. But if you engage in vandalism at a factory farm or even a grocery store or a restaurant where animal products are sold, you might be cited or you might be charged with a felony just because of these enhanced criminal penalties. So there's a very broad range of protections that producers have put in place. I want to get to Koopman on that. But first, I mean, if I eat a bunch of cheeseburgers and get fat, why should I be able to sue McDonald's or someone else? I mean, at some point, there's got to be some personal responsibility in this. There, there does. But as many people may be aware, the tobacco industry for decades misled Americans about the effects of tobacco smoking. And when lawsuits were finally successful, tobacco companies were forced to pay more than $400 billion to state Medicaid programs in this country. And many people are concerned that large food producers are misleading consumers as well. And the consumers are being literally denied the ability to make informed choices about what to eat. And at some point, I completely agree with you, we need to make personal decisions and take responsibility. But if you're, if you're given false and misleading information, which is what the tobacco companies did, and which is what many people think the food companies are doing, then, then that changes the playing field. Well, tobacco is addictive in a way that meat perhaps isn't. But Tim Koopman, do you want to respond to those? Oh, I'd just like to, like to respond a little bit to the ag-gag laws. Uh, California Cattlemen's Association did propose and work with a state legislator last year to have our own animal protection law drafted. And we I will not call it an ag-gag law. The only thing that ours did, and we promoted it, and HSUS was successful in, in kind of damning it and, and saying what it wasn't, uh, we wanted to have, uh, the only thing that our bill included was that within a 48-hour period, any observed mistreatment of animals, that you had to turn that evidence into a law enforcement officer within 48 hours. There was no penalty for any of the things that were mentioned previously, falsifying applications, etc. We want to stop any instances of animal cruelty because it's a, it's a black eye for us, most definitely. We don't want those people in business. And our ag-gag bill, if you would want to call it that, all it did was impose uh, a, a rule that said within 48 hours of the observation, this misbehavior, that needs to be turned into law enforcement. Those that called it an ag-gag bill, uh, why did you want to hold on to that for 48 hours? Why did you want to hold on to it for two or three or five weeks? If you could stop the cruelty that was going on in a particular location, why didn't you do it? And that was what our bill was about. How about some recent laws regarding the confinement of of livestock in in California? There have been some less on cattle, perhaps more on on pigs and, and poultry, that sort of thing. Uh, Tim Koopman, is that something that is, is fair game to have some 
some laws about the confinement of animals? Well, this is not an area that I have much familiarity with. Uh, when we, we look at happy cows in California, if you will, i got to say that my little gals at home are pretty damn happy. My cows, uh, as long as they're having a baby every year, we sell the calves as our product, and the cows stay there, and they're on pasture 365 days a year. And they're fed hay in the wintertime when it gets cold. They're moved from pasture to pasture to rotation system, so they've always got some, some feed in front of them, and they're doing well. And I would enjoy having anybody here come out and make a ranch visit. As far as the confinement issues with poultry, uh, pigs, etc., cetera, uh, that's kind of out of my area of sure. expertise. But there's also uh, concentrated factory farms in California, in the Central Valley, where the small sort of pastoral image of, of a rancher might be one thing, but there's industrial feedlots where it's a whole different story. And that's, I think, part of the thing that... that uh, if, I, if I could maybe address that, uh, probably everybody has been down Highway 5 and uh, observed Harris Feeding Company and uh, seen the feedlot situation there. When I sell my calves, they generally go to another six-month period of time. They, they wean off the cows about 700 pounds. They go to another grass season of six months. Then they will go to a feed yard, a uh, concentrated feed yard, if you will, CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation, and they'll be fed for 120 to 150 days on, uh, on a grain ration. And from there they go for processing. If you go by the Harris Feeding Company or any other feedlot, uh, there is adequate room and space. Uh, there are shade structures. There is a sprinkler system in place. And I think that's a little different than some other animal species in terms of the confinement. Uh, the animals in the feed yard have plenty of room to roam around. And uh, Scientists have determined how much square footage of space, bunk space, and loafing space that need to be there. And that's for about... 120 to 150 days is when those cattle are in that confinement period. Dave Simon? Well, I'm happy to say that this is uh, one area where you and I agree completely. I, I think that, first of all, your operation is great. I think it's great that, that your animals uh, are, are not confined and have the ability to roam. But I also think that, in general, beef cattle are known to have sort of the, the best lives of all the animals that people raise for food. However, let's look at chickens because chickens represent the majority of the food that Americans eat, both by virtue of the number of animals and by virtue of the amount of pounds that we eat per year. Chickens lead terrible lives. They have their beaks cut, uh, they're de-beaked so they don't attack each other, they're closely confined, they've been genetically manipulated to the point that they can't walk, and um, beef is certainly one thing, but that represents about 30% of the American diet. We need to look at uh, chickens, we need to look at pigs, we need to look at egg production, for example. The hens who lay our eggs are raised in battery cages. A typical hen has about 65 square inches to spend her entire life in. That's a space about like this. She can't open her wings. Typically, if you look at battery cages, you'll see one, one hen on top of another one. This is where all of our eggs come from, except for cage-free eggs that represent less than 5% of the eggs we consume in this country. Let's talk about the climate impacts of this. We started out talking about uh, that, that livestock could be as much as half, somewhere between 20 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Tim Koopman, what do you think about the connection between livestock, methane emissions, and, and climate change? First thing, I'd like to challenge one of the statistics that was thrown up on the screen here earlier. Uh, the UN's publication, Livestock's Long Shadow, 
uh, cited that 18% of all greenhouse gases, I think, United States production of greenhouse gases could be attributed to uh, the livestock industry. And since that time, there has been a correction done by the scientific community uh, after being challenged, and they weren't comparing apples to oranges. Uh, and I think it got lowered down to about 3.1%. And uh, so if the livestock industry is at 3.1%, that certainly is at it's minuscule compared to the transportation industry, the energy industry, et cetera. So that 18% figure, I believe, has been uh, discounted. Well, there's been some different numbers. It depends on who's counting and, and the counting. Methane is much more powerful than, than carbon dioxide. Dairy cows, beef cows are a big source of methane. Uh, is that something that the California cattlemen recognize? Absolutely. Uh, it has been of interest, certainly when that – the U.N. paper came out. It prompted our industry, our business, if you will, to take a look at methane uh, as a, an offshoot of the livestock industry, both dairy and beef. And I know that at UC Davis, uh, there's a professor uh, and a scientist that's been working on the application of methane digesters, where some of the methane gas that's coming off of dairy operations, where you've got confinement cattle, can then go into producing the energy to run the dairy. So it is of concern. Uh, we've looked at the numbers, and there is work being done by our folks. Dave Simon, Climate and Meat Connection. Well, um, I, by virtue of the way I feel about this, I, I tend to favor the studies that show a higher connection. And as you mentioned, Goodlin and Anghang published a paper that said that animal food production is responsible for 51% of climate change. And I think that probably the these year are former uh, these are experts that work for the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation. That's correct. A couple of scientists. And while 51 percent sounds pretty extreme, I think many people accept the U.N. estimate of 18 percent as a fairly conservative estimate. But, I, you know, the, the methane issue is an interesting one, because as you mentioned, methane is 21 times more effective at trapping heat in our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And with respect to cattle who are raised organically, and fed on grass, which is nice, the unfortunate result is that they produce four times as much methane as grain-fed animals. And so we get this very bizarre result that organically fed cattle are not necessarily more eco-friendly than inorganically raised animals. Oh, you just bummed out a lot of people in Berkeley and Marin. So... <laughs> Because uh, a lot of people are very upset about feeding grains to cattle, saying that's not good because it competes with food, drives up food prices in, the, in developing countries. So, Tim Koopman, let's have your response to that. Organic cows are not green. You just, okay. Well, uh, I would also say that through, uh, through genetic improvement over the past 30 to 40 years, we have fewer cows in California. We have fewer cows in the United States uh, because the efficiency and the genetic improvement, and this is not GMO, this is genetics simply taking a bull that's got some uh, value to him and using him more frequently and using him through AI. We've got fewer mother cows in the United States today than we've had since 1951. I think we're at 89 million cows in the United States presently with about 6 million or 5.5 million in California. But that's a whole lot less than used to be around. So if you got uh, fewer cows belching and <clears throat> passing gas, if you will. Uh, I think the efficiency of the cows that we've got uh, has reduced that number, and I, I think we're working 
to reduce numbers further to get more efficient production than what we've got. Fewer cows, probably less gas. So just to clarify this, a cow that's grazing on grass is going to chew and burp more more methane than a cow that's, that's sort of eating yes. corn out of a... Okay. There's a little difference between organic and grass-fed as well. We can have grass-fed finishing, but organic uh, beef or organic products in general have to meet some very rigorous standards that are established by uh, USDA. Uh, grass-fed beef does not have to necessarily be organic, and natural beef can be just free of antibiotics and free of hormones. So there's different classifications of the product. And it, organic and grass-fed, are those growing segments of the market? Give us a sense of the scale. Absolutely. Of- uh, there is a growing, and I'm through calling it niche marketing at this point in time, because I think that as consumers, a lot of us have accepted the fact that we want a natural product, no hormones, no antibiotics. We want a grass-fed product, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's organic, but we, we prefer the taste. We prefer the, the fact that we know where that animal came from. we got a little history on it. So it is not uh, necessarily a big part of the market now, but I think it's a growing segment of our market, and we accept that, and we'll work accordingly. But Dave Simon, uh, the, some research says that if what you eat is more important than what you drive, the fastest way to address climate change is to reduce meat consumption. That's even faster than moving to alternative fuels, which we spend a lot of time here at Climate One talking about. Uh, that's true. I, I remember a study that said that going vegan has the same effect as uh, switching from a gas hog to a Prius. And uh, it's not just climate change that, that's an issue. There are many other resource issues. The, the resources required to raise animal foods, remember, we're not just talking about beef. Beef represents a small portion of the animal foods consumed in this country. We've got to think about chicken, pork, dairy. It takes, on average, five times as much land to produce animal protein as it does plant protein. It takes 11 times the fossil fuels, and it takes 40 times or more water to produce animal protein than plant protein. So we're seeing a collision between increasing demand for these products and dwindling supply of the scarce natural resources necessary to produce them. And that's a, that's a major sustainability problem. Tim Koopman. The energy comes from the sun to plants to humans, but if it goes from the sun to plants to cows to humans, there's an extra step in there. It's an inefficient way to translate sun energy into our bodies. With two-thirds of the United States uh, being non-arable, in other words, we cannot farm it because of topography and soil conditions and soil depth, I believe strongly that the use of beef cattle as a grazing tool on these rangelands that we've got is a good way to produce a really valuable, highly nutritious, and safe protein source for the world. Two-thirds of the United States not farmable, and we were able to produce uh, a beef product there on the grazing land or the rangelands. And I think uh, in the absence of grazing that land and the absence of beef as a protein source, uh, to replace that to the world, uh, we would have to have more fa- farmland. We would have to use more resources for farming to produce legumes and beans and all those things that can be used in a vegetarian or vegan diet to replace a, a meat product. And we don't have that farmland available to us. We've got an increasing population in the United States. We've got an increasing world population with huge demand for protein as a part of their diet. 
And in the absence of grazing livestock and having that land available to produce food, I think we'd be in a lot worse shape than we are and we'd be in trouble. Dave Robinson? Well, uh, we use the majority of our cropland in this country to raise feed crops to feed to animals. And a great study that came out about 20 years ago suggested that almost 1 billion malnourished people on this planet could be fed if the feed that we give to animals was instead fed to people. So I, I, I think we disagree a bit on, on whether we're using our cropland effectively in this country. Tim Koopman? I think that where the problem lies is in the logistics and the mechanics of getting feed or food crops uh, that are fed to cattle delivered to where it's needed. I don't have an answer for that. Where is the infrastructure? How do we get it there, and how do we get it distributed adequately? It's fairly to, to those that are malnourished. Were, were cows intended to eat corn? Corn is not a staple food of their diet. No, it is not. Why is it used? It is used because it produces uh, a white fat, and it produces uh, the marbling within the muscle tissue itself that's become desirable. It helps the tenderness, the quality, and the flavor of the meat. Uh, we're talking about meat and climate change today. Climate One, Tib Koopman is president of the California Cattlemen's Association, and Dave Robinson is author of the book Meatnomics. And Dave Robinson, on Meatnomics, let's talk about subsidies. You write a lot about uh, the, the subsidies that go into ranching and, and farming, uh, and we just passed a farm bill, so let's talk about the economic side of this. Well, I, I calculate in my book the total subsidies that state state governments and the federal government provide to animal agriculture each year in this country, and I calculate that number at about $38 billion. To put that in perspective, that's about half of what all states spent on unemployment benefits last year. That number is probably an order of magnitude higher than the number that people typically think about when they think about animal food production subsidies. But that's because, as I mentioned, in this country, we devote more than half of our land to raising feed crops, and we subsidize those feed crops heavily. So producers benefit from those subsidies. When we calculate subsidies to animal foods, we have to calculate, we have to include subsidies to feed crops. That includes not just things like crop insurance, but irrigation subsidies as well that are provided at the state and federal level. Tim Koopman, there's a lot of, uh, maybe you don't directly benefit from those subsidies, but there's a lot of, of subsidy that goes into growing food for, for animals. I think the, uh, the recently passed new farm bill uh, has either reduced or eliminated direct cash subsidies to most farming operations. It's something that we in the livestock industry have been targeting for quite some time. Uh, I personally uh, have not availed myself of direct subsidies of any kind because the livestock industry doesn't have those available to us. But I do know that the Midwest, uh, where the bulk of our grain crops are grown, have uh, have successfully had these subsidies delivered to them for many, many years. Very strong political base there. And I think that uh, it's been a desire of a lot of folks that those direct payments be done away with. And I think what's available in the new farm bill is primarily uh, crop failure insurance or crop insurance and price insurance and not the direct payments that we've had in the past. Uh, the livestock industry has always been kind of independent. As a matter of fact, I grew up with uh, my grandfather and my dad telling me that 
you know, don't sign up for any of those programs. It's cowboy welfare. And so I have avoided uh, even doing things like that too much. I think you're, you're in a minority there. But uh, Dave Simon, is the recent farm bill a step in the right direction? Tim is correct that the farm bill eliminates direct payments, and I think those were something that people found incredibly objectionable. We had situations where people like Scotty Pippen, NBA star, was collecting subsidies for, for land that was once used for farming. But I, I think this might be another area where Tim and I differ a little. The, from what I understand about, about your ranch, Tim, I think that while you didn't, while you haven't accepted direct payments, I think, uh, if I'm correct, you've accepted at least three forms of uh, what, what might be considered indirect subsidies. So you've got grassland reserve program, you've got the equip program, and you've got conservation easements. Now, farm bill continues programs like that. They cost taxpayers money. And while direct payments are the most objectionable, this stuff all costs us money. Crop insurance will probably cost us $20 billion this year. First of all, let me, let me address the, uh, the easement that you mentioned. Yeah, I do have two conservation easements where actually they were mitigation easements on the family ranch. The funding for those mitigation easements was not from the government. The funding for those mitigation easements, uh, first of all, the first one was for the preservation of a breeding pond for the California tiger salamander, and that was uh, through mitigation for a, a San Jose housing project, and the developer of that housing project was going to disrupt 15 acres of prime California tiger salamander habitat and in order to get his permits from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Corps of Engineers, uh, U.S. or California State Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, he was required to replace the habitat value that he was destroying uh, in perpetuity in another location. Well, I happened to have had this breeding pond for many years, and I knew we had the tiger salamanders in there because uh, I used to take them home in a shoebox when I was a kid. But that's, you know... Nobody Fine. here from Fish and Wildlife. Anyway, uh, we were able to merchandise uh, the sale of a conservation easement or a mitigation easement for that breeding pond for the CTS. And so that was paid for by this developer in San Jose. The second easement that we have was uh, for the construction of a golf course at my north border. And so that was mitigation for the golf course itself. We have violas, uh, wildflower, Johnny Jump Ups, if they're, you know, people commonly call them, and they play an integral role in the life cycle of the Calipe Silverspot butterfly, which is another ESA or endangered species. And uh, so because we have this uh, wildflower population every year uh, that provides this habitat, uh, the golf course folks, the developers, the golf course, had to replace habitat that was being lost for the golf course, and we were able to provide that. In the EQIP, now, uh, David has mentioned the EQIP program, Environmental Quality Incentive Program. Uh, that's through the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which is an agent or a, a sub-agency of the USDA, and funds are made available to ranchers and farmers for doing conservation practices on their land uh, that benefit all natural resources. And yes, I have taken advantage of that, but the thing about these grants from USDA, they're usually a 50% uh, funding source. In other words, out of my pocket comes 50% of uh, the cash needed to uh, restore a creek, uh, fence out a riparian area, and do those things that are, are helping conservation, and 50% comes from 
the grant program through the USDA or the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. I think that most farmers and ranchers are providing what we commonly call ecosystem services. And being able to participate in this, there are benefits to every citizen in the United States for us doing those things that help preserve habitat, enhance water quality, and enhance the natural resources. So, yeah, I have taken advantage of the EQIP programs, but I've also, in implementing those practices, I've also ponied up my own dollars. Tim Koopman is president of the California Cattlemen's Association. Uh, Tim Koopman, I'd like to also ask you about you have, what, 3,000 members, is that right? About 3,000 members, yeah. In California who are ranchers uh, running cattle. What do they think about climate change? Is it happening, and what, what possibly could cattle and ranchers be part of the solution? Of the 3,000 members, uh, like any group, we've got a diversity of opinion. And I think if you take any group of people, you're going to have a diversity opinion about a lot of things. And I've got some people that will tell you that uh, climate change is not happening. And then I've got another group on the other end of the spectrum that are saying, yes, climate change is occurring, global warming is occurring, or whatever, and let's look for an answer to the problem. Let's see if we can be of benefit to try to help that. But uh, as with any group, uh, there's folks that think both directions. What do you personally think about climate change and how serious is it? I believe that climate change is occurring. Uh, I believe that it's probably been occurring for millions and millions of years over time. I don't think that our attack on the environment uh, with our carbon production has done a lot to help it. So I do think that we can do some things that would help to remedy the situation. We may not be able to stop climate change that's naturally occurring, but we can probably uh, slow it down, improve it, or make it livable. And how, how could cattle be part of that? I think that uh, carbon sequestration is being talked about a lot. I think they're selling carbon credits on the CME or Chicago Mercantile Exchange and all the boys in suits and ties that are making money off doing nothing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think that our natural rangelands in the state of California and throughout the United States do a good part to preserve uh, natural resources that sequester carbon. And I think that uh, with us as a Cattlemen's Association here about 12 years ago, we started uh, what's called the California Rangeland Trust. And our goal in the California Rangeland Trust is to put perpetual conservation easements on rangelands. The more rangelands, the more open space we've got, the more carbon we can sequester. Since the inception of the California Rangeland Trust, uh, we have proudly been able to preserve and put perpetual conservation easements on about 238,000 acres of California ranch lands. And they are never to be developed, and they can continually serve as a, a carbon sink, if you will. Dave Robinson, In our small way, we're working at it. Dave Robinson, is that good enough, or do you still think that meat is evil and we ought to do away with all meat? I, well, boy, you're putting words in my mouth. I can't disagree with that, I'll tell you. I, I don't argue in the book that we need to, to, to do away with all meat. I do argue in, in my book that we consume way, way too much meat, particularly in this country. But the rest of the world is trying to catch up with us. And when they do, we're going to really be in trouble. Climate change is only one issue. We haven't even talked about health problems today. In 1950, only one in eight Americans <laughs> was obese. 
But we've almost doubled our meat consumption since then, and today, one in three Americans is obese. Meat is not the only reason people become overweight or obese, but the clinical literature shows there is a very, very close link to consumption of meat and dairy and overweight, obesity, cancer, heart disease, and other diseases. In this country, we consume more meat per capita than any other people on the planet. When the rest of the world catches up to us, and I said they're trying, the world will be short two-thirds again as much land as we'll need in order to raise the animals and the feed crops to feed them to meet that very high level of demand. So, Tim Koopman, uh, is meat bad for human health? I think meat, like anything else, uh, is a, can be a healthy part of anyone's diet. Meat in moderation, just like is alcohol good for people. Is tobacco, well, tobacco is another deal. Throw it out. But I think that meat in moderation can be part of, of anybody's healthy diet. Uh, beef does provide uh, a lot of amino acids and, and really does fit well into a healthy heart diet. There are 26 specific beef cuts that are right on par with chicken and fish uh, as far as being low fat as well. But I'm a beef eater, and I'll be the first to admit it, uh, but I think the obesity issue in the United States is probably, I'd like to attribute quite a bit of it to the sedentary lifestyle that a majority of Americans live right now. I mean, I'm, I see people jogging, I see people running, I see people cycling and hiking, but that's not the majority of Americans. Uh, most people, they get home from work and they take an elevator to their apartment, then they sit in front of the TV, unfortunately. Uh, years ago when uh, my grandfather and my dad were working the ranch, they ate big meals, but they worked hard, they were active, and both of them were, were in top shape and into their 90s. Uh, I just think that sedentary lifestyle has something to do with it. I'm not promoting beef at every meal either, but I think it's a, it can be a healthy part of anybody's diet. It's a healthy protein source. Beef demand is declining quite sharply in the United yes. States in the, la in the last 10 years. And is that because of chicken, because of the health concerns that, that Dave Robinson is talking about? I mean, I think there is some pretty – the medical literature is pretty clear on animal protein, and beef can be – have some real serious health concerns. Is that finally coming around, and perhaps the industry is looking to exports to, to make up that slack? Beef consumption has declined in the United States pretty sharply, as, as David mentioned. Uh, we're at about 61 pounds, I think, uh, in 2012, 61 pounds of beef per year per person per capita consumption. I think a lot of that probably has to do with price. Uh, we've gone through a, a fairly severe economic downturn in the United States, and beef has always been kind of a premium product reserved for special occasions. And chicken has been produced in abundant quantity and fairly cheap. So chicken has replaced beef as the primary protein on the plate, so to speak, over this generation. As far as the, the health of the, of the product itself, again, I think it fits into a healthy diet. Dave Robinson, I read something in your book which surprised me that chicken and salmon actually have the same amount of cholesterol as beef. That was news to me. They do, and uh, that's one reason why some of the clinic literature that suggests that meat is good for us is a little bit misleading because while chicken and fish have the same, uh, maybe have much lower fat content than ground beef, they do have the same level of cholesterol. So often when clinical studies compare low-fat diets and high-fat diets, they say, eh, this looks about the same. 
But what those studies don't account for is these very high levels of cholesterol, and we know that blood cholesterol is one of the risk factors for heart disease and other diseases. How did you become, you're a vegan now, how did you become a vegan? I spent a day watching videos about factory farming and animal testing. And was it a difficult transition to do you go cold turkey, just boom, no, never again? Cold turkey, sorry. The <laughs> this happened when I was 44, and I was a, I was a junk food junkie. I, spent, I, I ate my meals at uh, Carl's Jr., Western Bacon Cheeseburgers, Big Macs, etc. That's what I ate for the first 44 years of my life. Uh, it turned out that my, for most of my adult life, my cholesterol was at about 200. My body mass index was uh, at about 25, which is the, the threshold for overweight. I had acid reflux. I had a variety of problems. But as I said, one day, I was all alone in my house, nothing to do. I watched hours and hours of these videos. And at the end of that period, it was like I had an epiphany. A switch clicked in my head. So when you ask, was it difficult, there was no alternative for me. Suddenly, I simply had no way to eat animal foods anymore. And it's just, what, so no, it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult transition. We're talking about meat and the health of our bodies and our climate at Climate One. Our guests are Tim Koopman, president of the California Cattlemen's Association, and Dave Simon, author of Meatnomics. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Joanne Davis. I'm just wondering about the benefit on parts per million. I think if we're, we're approaching the limit that's not reversible for climate change, and over what period of time and how much consumption would we could we really make a, a, a big change if people were to uh, reduce consumption? I know that people uh, such as Dr. Pachari, who's head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said that reducing meat consumption is one of the biggest things people can do. Some people think that what you eat is more important than what you drive. People tend to think a lot about their cars, etc. The thing with a car is you make that purchase every five, ten years, whereas you make food decisions, hopefully, if you're lucky, every day. So it takes a more sustained commitment rather than you can buy your electric car and think you're good for a while. In terms of specific numbers, I don't have any in terms of the path, but uh, I think there's a growing recognition that food is a really big part of this, and there's been a lot of focus on smokestacks, uh, power plants, automobiles. I don't know if, Dave Simon, you have anything to add. Well, uh, I suggest in my book something that people will think of as fairly radical, but I suggest that we tax animal food products in this country. And the, the tax that I propose in conjunction with some other institutional changes like restructuring how food stamps or the SNAP program is used for people to buy food would result in roughly a 44% drop in consumption of animal foods. And that, in turn, would have the effect of eliminating about 3 trillion pounds per year of carbon equivalent emissions, which would just be like garaging all motor vehicles and all motor vessels in this country each year this tax is in effect. So I think reducing animal food consumption and production would have a major, major effect in mitigating and reversing climate change. You also acknowledge in the book that that's politically unlikely, but you're putting it out there as a bold idea that you think will maybe get some traction because we don't like taxes on anything these days. We can't tax carbon pollution. We can't tax bad things. How are we going to tax something that a lot of people view as good? Americans like their hamburgers. Yeah, no, that's I I don't disagree with that. Um, But, you know, 
when, when Gandhi set out to dismantle British rule in India, he said, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I figured I would ask, and uh, we'll see what happens. Did you just call him the Raj? <laughs> Let's have our next audience question. Yes, my name is Mary Siegfried, and um, I'm here today because I'm very interested in the issue. I, I am a former heavy meat eater turned uh, plant-based, but I'm here because uh, of my concern about the environment and you referenced the World Bank's reworking of the, I believe it was a kind of a reconsideration of uh, livestock's long shadow, the UN study. And the two people who were involved in that, and foremost, you know, experts, said that there was actually like an impact of 51% on uh, climate from... Uh, Carbon pollution coming from animals, right? Yes. Livestock. But I also have read since then... I understood that there's both methane and ammonia uh, emitted, and that that the I believe it's the methane has a very short half-life, something like nine to thirteen years, and so it which opens the possibility of cleaning that up or removing it from the, uh, much more quickly than carbon dioxide, which has a longer half-life. We we talked about methane. We uh, Dave Simon. We did not talk about pneumonia. Uh, is that an issue from the manure? Uh, yeah, manure emits typically uh, four chemicals of concern, carbon dioxide, ammonia, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And these are all things that we should worry about. I'm, I'm not a chemist. I don't know about the half-life. That, that's an interesting issue. But I think, uh, I think we should be concerned about all of these. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. I'm Liz Fisher from Citizens Climate Lobby, and my question was, how do we sort of compromise between Dave and Tim? What can we do to get more farmers to be like Tim? But um, Dave sort of answered half of my question with the carbon tax. We lobby for a carbon tax, a revenue-neutral carbon tax. So to Dave, the question is, what would you think about making that revenue-neutral in terms of putting that money back in consumers' pockets? And then to Tim, how can we get more farmers to be like you and not the factory farms? Let's start with that one. Uh, Tim Koopman, uh, revenue-neutral carbon tax is something a lot of Republicans support, uh, including former Secretary of State George Shultz, many members of Republican administrations. Is that something that could get some traction among the cattlemen and ranchers? First of all, there need to be a pretty good explanation because the idea of a tax right off the bat makes people bristle up. But if there was an explanation that went along with that, the possibility uh, exists that it would be accepted. In answer to the question about uh, more producers accepting some ideas and accepting the fact that it's a good thing to have endangered species on your property, it's a good thing to protect the resources and protect water flow, etc., I think we're making a lot of headway. I think we've got a lot of producers and growers in the United States, I know particularly in California, that think kind of the way I do. The problem with farmers and ranchers is we don't spend a lot of time with our PR people. Uh, we don't have agents. And uh, we've never talked about it too much, but a lot of us grew up taking care of resources and doing the right thing. We just never said much about it. I think... We're out there, and I think we're kind of picking those up that aren't, uh, dragging them along by the boot heels. You might also say you worked for the city of San Francisco protecting a watershed, and you found some common ground among some unlikely sources in that story. 
Yeah, if I take just a minute to explain. In about 2005, Steve Thompson, who was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service operations manager for Nevada and California, was approached by conservation organizations when he started to work in Sacramento. He was accused by the conservation organizations of not spending the federal dollars wisely for habitat conservation and resource protection. Steve, at that point in time, asked these mainstream conservation organizations to identify the most valuable habitat in the state of California and collectively to come back to him mapping that area that they wanted him to spend the federal money on. They came back with a ring around the Central Valley of California which identified the annual grasslands and the foothills of California as being the most biodiverse, valuable habitat in the state. Steve's response to them was that, you know, unless we have a change in mind here, we're going to have a hard time spending our money there because 97% of that is privately owned by ranchers. So that will give you some idea of, of what we've done as far as stewarding the land. Well, what evolved from that conversation was Steve said, unless you can work with the ranching community, we're not going to be able to spend the money there. And that started a, a little deal that happened in my shop, as a matter of fact, on a Saturday morning. It was in August 2005 of our first meeting of the California Rangeland Conservation Coalition. Anybody remembers being at the eighth grade dance where all the girls stood on one side and all the boys stood on the other? For the first half hour, 45 minutes, the only movement that went on was to go to the coffee pot and back to your side. But after the end of that day, it was amazing the much as much discussion as went on with good projects and good things we could do, and since that time we've only grown. We have over a hundred signatories to this coalition right now, and they include almost every conservation organization in the state of California, public agencies, and ag organizations. And it was said that we can agree on about 90% of the issues, and we can go forward and do good things. We will never agree on the 10%, so let's not talk about it and let's just go do good stuff. So that was, that was a, a real – talk about having an epiphany. We can work together with the conservation organizations. Tim Koopman is president of the California Cattlemen's Association. We're talking about meat and climate and health at Climate One. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, I'm Pat Tibbs, and I'm 75 years old. And for most of those 75 years, I ate red meat. About 10 years ago, I stopped. Today, I want to thank you, Mr. Koopman, for, for being as responsible as you are in producing beef. However, I will not be one of your customers. David, a year ago, I stopped eating meat. I attribute that somewhat to the fact that my son and daughter-in-law are vegan. <laughs> mm. I do listen to them, and I determined just based on my health history that eating meat wasn't healthy for me. And in the last year, it's been borne out in my blood panels. And I thank you for writing your book. Thank you for that comment. Uh, David, do you believe that it ought to be a choice, that different people might have different choices, and that's okay? You know, we have meat eaters and vegans, and, and there's a place for choice, and that meat may not be bad for everyone, or certain people have different, different bodies, different types? Absolutely. People need to make their own choices, but I think... The animal food industry in this country 
has successfully diminished the ability of consumers to make choices because it misleads us and it provides us with misinformation. And because many examples of this, I just talked about those studies that compare low-fat and high-fat diets and show that there's no difference. Another example is milk for children. $50 million per year is spent promoting uh, milk consumption in our, in our schools. The federal government stands behind so-called checkoff programs that message us aggressively with, with messages like uh, beef, it's what's for dinner, milk, it does a body good, pork, the other white meat. Now, I know Tim will tell you this is private industry, but in fact, in 2005, the United States Supreme Court said that when you hear those messages as a matter of law, that is the United States federal government telling you to eat more meat, notwithstanding that we already, in this country, we already eat, in every age and sex demographic, more meat than the USDA says we should. The USDA continues to push this messaging on us. And I find that troubling because, as I mentioned, it, it diminishes consumers' ability to make informed choices. People walk to the grocery store at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and because they've been bombarded with beef, it's what's for dinner, over and over and over again, guess what? They buy beef. People respond to advertising. That's, that's how we are. Tim Koopman, is the government in the business of promoting meat and dairy? I'm a little familiar with the checkoff program that we have in the beef business, and I would not agree with David that it's a government-sponsored beef promotion. Uh, it had to be legislatively approved because it uh, requires the, the voting of the entire industry, if you will, whether we're going to have the checkoff or not. What happens every time a beef animal changes ownership, we make a contribution to uh, the beef council, if you will, and then research, marketing, all those things that go on with a checkoff program. But I'd certainly, I certainly, I think it's divorced from the government. I think it's our own industry promoting our product. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Hi, my name is Andrew DeCoriolis. Uh, Tim and Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Dave, you know, we talked a lot about climate today, of course, but when you were asked what made you change your own personal habits, you said it was watching videos and, and sort of sort of experiencing what it is for the billions of animals that we raise uh, on farms in this country. What do you think the conversation is, I guess for all three of you, that we need to be having that's actually going to move the needle to sort of change this entrenched uh, factory farm industry? Is it about climate and carbon, or is it about, you know, the, the experience of all of the animals that uh, live in these places. Tim Koopman, we've talked a lot about the small guys, but the fact is there's, what, two or three meat processors in the whole country. There's a, there's a concentration of power in the industry. How could that power be moved towards some of the things you're talking about? Wait a minute. He asked him the question, not <laughs> me. <laughs> all right, Dave? Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I think we're used to thinking about well, people who think about these things, not everybody, but uh, I'm used to thinking about animal agriculture as having three problems, ethical, nutritional, and environmental. With my book, I've added a fourth problem category, which is economics, but I think we need to be concerned with all of these issues. We haven't even discussed the ethical issues today, seriously. I, I mentioned this fact that farm animals have no uh, anti-cruelty protection. I'd like to quote, uh, just briefly, a Connecticut statute on this issue. In Connecticut, the law says it is legal, quote, to intentionally maim, mutilate, torture, wound, or kill an animal, provided the act is done while following generally accepted agricultural practices, unquote. That's a direct quote from the Connecticut statute. 
Every single state in this country has a similar law in place, either by statute or by judicial decision-making. It's not always worded exactly the same, but the effect is identical. Farm animals can be treated in virtually any way that is expedient and that saves money for the producers. These animals lead terrible, terrible, miserable lives. If you have not seen these videos, I encourage you to go look at a three-minute video of factory farming. In the one hour that we've been sitting here, a million animals have been killed for food in, these, in this country. One million animals in one hour, and those animals all, except for the 200 on Tim's farm, led miserable, miserable lives. So I'm focused on the ethics, but the climate issues are important, the nutritional issues are important, and the costs, the financial costs are huge. Tim Kubin. I'd like to respond just a little bit, and it's not just the 200 animals on my ranch. The vast majority of animals that I am familiar with, and I've, I've visited feedlots, I've visited many, many ranches over my years, farms, etc. And from a beef cattle standpoint, I've also visited uh, processing plants, slaughterhouses, if you will. And I have never been uh, subjected to what I consider to be animal cruelty. I am very adamantly opposed to the mistreatment of animals. I take it personally as an affront that anyone is making money by treating animals badly. But we do see downer cows being taken in, that sort of thing. You understand where this is coming from. California Cattlemen's Association, over 15 years ago, helped to sponsor legislation saying that downer cows were not to be transported to processing plants. And we have worked diligently to get that accepted at the federal level, and it has yet to be. But in the state of California, we have pushed for that. I just I don't think there's anything worse than mistreating an animal. I just don't think it's, it's something that we practice, and most of the, my constituents and most of my colleagues do not practice that. Dave Simon, last word. I'd like to ask you a question, Tim. Do you, with respect to, to the animals you raise, do you, do you castrate, for example, your male animals? Yes, we do. Do you anesthetize them before we you use, do that? We use a uh, paste gel that comes from Australia, and we use an antiseptic. An anesthetic and an antiseptic. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. I think that puts you in the vast minority of beef cattle. Uh, there, there is, a, and this, this is a practice that's becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, we recognize that the surgical procedure for castration, which most people have their dogs uh, altered as well, but it has been done sans anesthetic before for years and years and years and generations, but there is a product on the market now that more and more people are using. It comes in a gel form and it is a numbing agent. And on that happy note, we're going to end it there. Uh, our thanks to Tim Koopman, president of the California Cattlemen's Association, and Dave Simon, author yeah, of Beatnomics. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming and listening to Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>